Well, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open it to the book of Micah. Again, we're having you get some experience, these little books of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. Um, this one's only seven chapters long, so there's not many pages. You might even need to check your, your uh, table of contents to find these little books. Uh, but they're amazing. They're amazing prophetic books. And we're going to be looking at the book of Micah. More than 3,000 years ago, God did one of the most amazing miracles that we read about in the Bible. And it was in freeing Israel from the slavery and bondage of Egypt. And it's probably one of the more well-known Bible stories amongst all believers, all Christians. It's when they were fleeing Egypt and... Pharaoh changed his mind and he sent his chariots and his army to chase him down. And Moses and all of the people were backed up against the Red Sea with no escape, at least not in the natural. And God stopped and opened up the Red Sea. And it says that they walked across, walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And all of them, and we don't even know for sure, but it was well over a million people, went through the Red Sea. Supernatural miracle of God. That's only the first half of it. When they got on the other side, the Egyptians, their chariots, their horses, their army, was chasing them through the Red Sea on this same dry land, and God let go of the water and destroyed the army and the chariots and horses of Egypt. And when Moses got on the other side with all the people and they were gathered together and the sea had collapsed upon the enemy, if you read in chapter seven, uh, 15, I believe it is, of Exodus, chapter 15, they've now on the other side and almost the entire chapter is a song of praise, a song of deliverance that Moses is singing before the people. And in it, there is a particular verse in verse 11 where it says these words, Who among the gods is like you? Lord, who is like you? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders, working miracles. Now, if you look at that verse, who is like the Lord? It's like he's saying, there's no one like you. Who's like you? You're so amazing. Look what you have just done. They've just witnessed this astounding miracle that we talk about 3,000 years later. And he was there. And he's asking this question. So now we fast forward almost 700 years. So now we're somewhere in the area of 700 B.C. And there is a, a new prophet, another prophet. And his name is Micah. Micah is prophesying to the Lord. If, if some of the history... The nation of Israel had been divided for almost 200 years now into two groups, a northern part called Israel, a southern part called Judah. In the northern part of Israel, the capital city was Samaria. In the southern part, Judah, it was Jerusalem. And they had split. Even God's people couldn't get along, and they split. And we're at again at a time, there's actually Isaiah and Hosea are other prophets that lived at the same time as Micah. God had more than one prophet moving amongst the nations. 
And as we've been going through these Old Testament prophets, these minor prophets, one of the things you see is how evil had it gotten, how much sin there was, the, the greed, the treating of the poor horribly, taking advantage of the poor, dishonest merchants. And more than one of them talks about, and Micah does too, how evil and corrupt not only the political leaders of the day were, but how, how evil and corrupt the religious leaders of the day were. Temple prostitutes. Mike even makes a, an analogy to prostitution, raising up the church, generating the monies, the finances for the church, the church of that day, how evil and dark it was. It was so evil in that day that there were certain, some peoples who actually offered up their children as burnt offerings to idols. So when we read in these minor prophets, one of the things that we can slip into is hearing how harsh our God is. He talks about the punishment that he is going to bring upon them. And it's always horrifying. And it's easy for us to think, what kind of God is this? Some of us may have had people ask us that. What kind of God destroys people, kills people, does all these things? One of the things we need to remember is when we go through these prophecies, these, these warnings that God has given through the prophets, as horrible as they sound, are an act of grace by God. He's giving them a warning. He's giving them a chance. God in His holiness and His righteousness and His justice didn't have to give anybody a warning. He didn't have to give anybody a warning. He could have brought judgment instantly the moment they sinned. But he doesn't do that because we'll see today he loves mercy. He loves to be merciful. So when we read these these minor prophets, especially the prophets, any of the prophets really, we need to realize that the words that they're bringing, the warnings that they're bringing have one purpose, to try to bring the people back in relationship with the God of Israel. Because he doesn't want any of them to die. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So Micah comes along, and there was one one of the the historians I was reading about Micah's, the time of Micah. Micah was from another rural area, another very rural area. And it was called, um, I never can pronounce this right, Morasheth Gath. And there's a part of the land of Israel that's called the Shephelah. It is the fertile land of Israel. He's a farmer. And what caught my attention from this one historian who said one of the many things that the nation was doing that was in violation of the law that had been given was people were migrating and moving to the cities and wealthy, powerful people were buying up all the farmland. Sounds almost familiar, doesn't it? And then they were taking advantage of and almost getting the people that would rent from them into a position of servitude and slavery. Which again, all of that was a violation of God's law. So maybe that's why God raised up Micah, a rural prophet. And Micah spoke to both nations of Israel, the northern nation, and also Judah, the southern nation. He spoke to both of them. And gave warnings to both of them. And his warnings, 
we're not going to have any time really to go through all of these warnings and all of these things. I, I hope and encourage you to read through these. They're not long books. But, but the, the evil practices and the judgment of God are amazingly almost overwhelming. The book of Micah is basically broken into three categories, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3, 4, 5, and then chapter 6 and 7. And they all start out the same way so you can tell when you're in the next part. It's as if God, it says it's like God is coming as a witness in a courtroom or the prosecuting attorney, if you would, and at the same time he's the judge. How would you like to be in that courtroom? The prosecution is the judge. And anyway, he gives these, so when you read these, it's if they're, if they're in a courtroom and they're testifying. God is testifying through this prophet. And each one of them starts out with words like, Hear you peoples. Listen to this one, Micah verse 2, chapter 1. Hear you people, all of you. Pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you and the Lord from His holy temple. Who is like this God that He commands the attention of the whole planet? Listen, everybody. Everybody and everything in it, listen to what I'm about to say. Commanding the attention of the planet Earth. And then He gives them this warning, this instruction. And it's as if Micah is saying, we got to listen to this guy, this, this God that Moses declared, who is like the Lord. And we're going to see Micah eventually quotes and says the same thing in the last chapter. There's no one like him. Listen, listen, listen. And if I have a one-string fiddle or banjo, this is the message that I play. How seriously do we take the Word of God? Moses is, Micah is declaring, the whole world, listen to this. This is God that there is no one like Him. And we have His very Word right here. How seriously did the people of Israel and Samaria take it? Well, most of the time, they didn't take it seriously. Praise God, Micah is one of the few prophets where we see that they actually listened but it took somewhere between 16 and 25 years of him proclaiming this warning. And the people did repent. And a king came who was a godly king. And nearly over a century, God's judgment was withheld. But listen, how seriously do we take God? You know, if we used the measure of how seriously we, we take his word as to how serious we take God, we may find ourselves wanting just a little bit. Do we honor His Word? Do we read His Word? Do we spend time in His Word? What is our attitude towards His Word? Do we pay more attention to God's Word than we do social media? That one hurts, doesn't it? Social media. How much time do we spend on it each day? How much time do we spend in His Word each day? Do we spend more time and pay more attention to God's Word than we do worrying about what other people think about us? Do we pay more attention to God's Word than we do gaming and entertainment? Boy, that'd be a tough standard for many of us. Convicts me. That's for sure. 
Why should we take God's word so seriously? Because there's no one like him. There's no one like him. So I'm going to try to go through, the, Micah, just some of it. I'm going to just focus on parts of it. I want us to read first in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. And, and you can see these warnings repeated throughout the chapter. So I'm going to just read this section to give it a feel for what God is really warning the people about. Starting in verse 1, Hear you people, all of you, pay attention. O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord, as He comes from His holy temple. Boy, want to get a picture in your mind. God is leaving His temple, and He's coming to earth with a warning as a witness. And then He goes on and He says, Behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgressions of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All their wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of prostitutes she gathered them, and to the fee of prostitutes they shall return. What a description of God's judgment. You know, Samaria, the capital city, basically what he says, I am going to demolish it to such an extreme it's going to become farmland. There'll be nothing left. They'll be able to plant their vineyards where this city exists. And as I said earlier, when you read about these things, you think, my goodness, what kind of God is this? I think there's two things that we maybe underestimate. And the first is this, just how evil the people were and how holy God is. And we probably underestimate just how evil people still are. How often do we hear this phrase from people in the world that we live in? People are basically good. How many of you know that is not biblical? The Bible tells us There is not one single good thing in my heart. Nothing. Nothing. The world is evil. That's why God's justice demands that He respond, and yet in His mercy, He gives such wonderful warnings and cautions. They were worshiping false gods, violence, immorality, oppression, greed. It was was terrible, and yet He warned them. And as I mentioned earlier, we need to remind ourselves when God warns them or when God warns us, when he brings someone to us with a caution, a word of caution, someone who is willing, is trying to hold us accountable, someone who cares about us, you know, we don't care about one another, anything like God cares about us, but in a similar way, when someone comes and warns you, it's the grace of God. It's God's grace. And he's demonstrating it over and over through all these prophets we read about with his desire to redeem, draw people back to himself. 
He does not desire to kill anybody. Now, if you read some of the Old Testament and you don't have understanding, it's like this God wants to kill half the population. And the reality is, it deserves it. But in his grace and mercy, he doesn't. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it says this, starting at verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure, the Lord is saying this, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn away and live. Turn away and live. He's pleading with his people to turn away. Go to the next section in Micah, starting in chapter 3. Once again, it starts out with, listen, hear, pay attention. He's testifying again, and he goes into the warning and the judgment, which I'm not going to review. But he does come to a place where he's going to start giving a prophetic picture of a coming Messiah, that there's hope. There is hope on the horizon. God is not abandoning us, not leaving us hopeless. I'm going to read in Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people will run to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples will walk, each in the name of God, but in its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You see the end time picture that Micah is referring to back in 700 B.C. That there is going to be a time when God is going to bring this place of peace. No more war. No more fighting. No more arguing. So even as the prophets are speaking these words of judgment, warning of the judgment that's coming, Micah begins to give us this picture of what God is going to do a place where there's going to be a complete calm, going to be total peace, total peace, place without fear. Really, the hope should be the hope of every Christian. Then in chapter 5, it even gets better. Finally, it gets better. It says, starting in verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, and seize his land against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, where have we heard that before? Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from whom shall come forth is one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Therefore, 
He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure and shall be great till the end of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Who is he talking about? Jesus. Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ. When the wise men came and asked, where can we find him? The priest said, Bethlehem. Micah predicted this as he's prophesying to the people that 700 B.C. And this has already come to pass as we look back on it. Jesus came the first time as God in the flesh. And he redeemed us because of it, through his death, his burial, resurrection. He paid a price for us. The peace of God. And as we look at the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us, there should be a peace in us. Part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit we've talked about before. We should be at peace more than any other person on earth. Christians should live in peace. And this is what Micah is predicting and prophesying that is going to come. We have peace with God. And then it gets even better because he tells us Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come a second time. We have, the, we have the access to the peace of the Lord now as Christians. But there's going to come a time when he's going to return and he's going to change everything. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to reign with peace. No more. No more worry. No more fear. Total peace. But we can live in that even now as Christians. Which begs to ask the questions, why do we worry so much? Why is so much of our time taken with worry and fear, wondering what's going to happen next? You know, if you're not, a, not saved, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't know what peace is. There's a peace that, the Bible says, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that we can't understand here because we can be in the midst of chaos all around us, and as a Christian, we can live and walk in peace. And it's attractive to the world because the world is looking for peace. And the last segment starts in Micah chapter 6. And once again, I'm not going through the warning of the sin and I'm not going through the lamenting of judgment. I'm just going to focus in chapter 7, starting at verse 18, where the title of the message comes from and where Micah repeats the same words that Moses sang in that song in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Starting in verse 18, it said, Who is a God like you? And then he goes into describing why he's this God that there is no one like him. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, mercy in most or many translations. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Picture these things. Our sin, our iniquities under his feet. And then it goes on and says, if that's not good enough for you, he'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Picture in your mind all your sins and Jesus just takes them all. He's on a ship in the middle of the ocean and he just throws them all into the bottom of the sea. Who is like this God? This is what Micah is telling us. Who is like this? There's no one like this. And this is what he's done for you. You will see, you will show faithfulness 
to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from old. Who is a God like you? And it's an interesting thing. And, you know, God doesn't do anything by accident, right? How many of you know what the name Micah means? And if you happen to be a Michael, that's what your name means. What does the name Micah mean? It means who is like the Lord. And here it is, the Micah, the prophet, is raised up. And he delivers this message. Who is like the Lord? Every time Micah's name would be said, it would be a reminder. Who is like the Lord? If we paid attention to our names in in the Hebrew, every time my name is said, it should be a reminder. Who is like the Lord? Now, some of my family that knows me, I've told them many times that's what my name means. But I meant it in a different way. Who is like the Lord? Here I am. What arrogance. But it should be who is like the Lord. Every time you hear my name, every time you say my name, if your name is Mike, every time you repeat your name, it should be a reminder in the Hebrew, who is like the Lord? There is no one like him. Who in the world could trample all your sin and iniquity under his feet? Who in the world could take all of your sin and throw them into the deepest ocean, never to be seen again and never to be looked at again by God? Never. Never to be held against you again. Who is like this God? No one is like this God. Hebrews ten seventeen, a verse, you may not know where it's at, but you've heard it before. I will remember his sins no more and their lawless deeds. No more. In Psalms it says, I will remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you believe this? Do we really? Do I believe it? Sometimes I forget. We should never, ever, ever allow our past sins that have been forgiven to hold us back. We should never, ever, ever let the enemy use those things against us to keep us in bondage as Christians. We should never allow those words of condemnation or guilt or shame to haunt us because they're lies. That's not who we are. All of that stuff has been thrown into the deepest sea and Jesus doesn't look at them. God doesn't look at them. Our Father doesn't look at them. Why do we? That doesn't mean we sin and just sin and knowing that it's going to go. No, but it should set us so free when we know that there's no one like this God. Living in freedom that He purchased for us. Instead of focusing on all that sin, we need to focus on who is like this God? Who is like this God? Who shows mercy like this God? Who shows love like this God? Who shows faithfulness like this God? Who delivers on His promises like this God? And when we focus on those things, it will change the way we think and the way we live. And it will give us greater and greater freedom that we can now walk in. Freedom that God has already purchased for us through Jesus. But the enemy keeps lying to us and we believe the lies. And it keeps us in the bondage of that that sin that's at the bottom of the ocean that he's never going to bring up again. Why would we stand and judge ourselves when he's not going to judge those sins? They've been forgiven. Who is like him? Who is like this God? 
There are so many promises in the Word of God. Just find a few that you like. And memorize them. Learn them so that when your mind starts to be attacked by the thoughts of the enemy and your thoughts are going in a direction that they should not go, you go, no, that's not true. Those things, are, are I may have done them in my past, but they're gone. That person's dead. I'm a new creation in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God, a peace that's beyond understanding. I mean, we just learn a few of these scriptures. Believe them. Focus on them. The Bible tells us, think on those things which are good. There's nothing better than the Word of God. Think on those things. In 1 John 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, but that would be all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What's an advocate? That's the one who pleads our case. And Jesus doesn't have to go into a long oration when he pleads his, our case before the Father. Man, you bring all the accusations that you want against Mike. And Jesus simply says, he's my child. He's covered by the blood. Set him free. That's all there is to it. That's the God that he is. He is our advocate. And the verse goes on and says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but all the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Big word. Simply means, He was my substitute. You can throw all those accusations at me all you want. Jesus is my advocate. He's my attorney. And not only is He my attorney, He already paid the penalty. The wages of Mike's sin... Or death. He died for me. Penalty of the wages of your sin was death. He died for you. He paid the price. And when the enemy comes and makes accusation, Jesus says, Dad, they're covered by the blood. The Bible tells me that I am holy and righteous in Christ. Now, that's hard to comprehend because I know my flaws, and there are many. But in God's eyes, the Father's eyes, when he looks at Mike, there's this thing that he has to look through. It's Jesus and his blood. And when he sees me through that, he sees the righteousness of Christ in me and in you. It's the freedom we should walk in. There are amazing warnings in all these prophetic books that we're going through. We see the justice of God over here. Thankfully, it never stands on its own. It's always balanced by the character of God, his mercy, his love, his compassion. But when he comes back, and we've talked about this from the other prophets, when he comes back, he's coming back, and we're going to experience the fullness of all he's purchased for us. But remember, when he comes back for his bride, hopefully that's us, all of us, Because the ones that aren't his bride, he's going to come back and he's going to judge the earth. And if you're not in the bride, if you're not part of the bride, your destination's hell, not heaven. So when Jesus comes back, it's going to be the greatest day. When we hear that trumpet, man, we should be screaming for joy and excitement. But oh my goodness, 
the world is going to tremble and judgment will come. So the admonition from the prophets is the same one for us. Have you submitted your life to Christ? Have you accepted the free gift of salvation that Jesus paid for by his very life? Acknowledge our sins that we need a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only one that could pay the price. If you haven't done that, that's what you need to do. And who wouldn't want to surrender to your life to a Lord who loves you that much? There's no one like this God. You know, we, we, we can lose mind, lose, lose focus when we hear about all these idols, thinking we don't have those. Thank goodness we don't have idols everywhere. We're not all worshiping idols. The world, that's, we're deceived. Our idols may not be wood and stone. Our idols can be material goods. Our idols can be family. Our idols can be anything that we put above the Lord. Nothing. Who is like our God? Nothing. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just continue to be in awe of your patience and long-suffering with your people. And I thank you that you are. We thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your grace. And God, we pray even in our day that you would hold back the fullness of your wrath. God, there are so many who do not know you as Lord and Savior. God, we, we as your church, your, your, your children, have been called to share the good news of the gospel. God, and, and sometimes we haven't done that well. Lord, I pray that you would give us a new boldness, a new passion, a new enthusiasm to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning we pray for our youth and their leaders that are out in Las Vegas doing just that, sharing the good news of Jesus, demonstrating the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would seize those opportunities that we have every day that come across our paths. We don't have to preach a sermon. We don't have to do anything so extraordinary that it's not possible for us to do it. We can just demonstrate love. We can say a kind word. And when the opportunity comes, be ready to share the hope that what's within each, within each one of us. Lord, I pray that as we go, you watch over us, keep us safe. We continue to pray for our kids, keep them safe out in Las Vegas. We continue to pray for Missy and John and others in our body that are battling physical ailments. God, we just thank you and praise you that you are Jehovah, Rapha, the God that heals. Be blessed as we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.